Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Aaron O'Toole says he's confident that his elected MPs have his back, despite voting to give themselves the power to review his leadership and possibly remove him. Talk about that. A data scientist told Congress yesterday that Facebook's products harm children while prioritizing profits over safety. More on the whistleblower's testimony with Global's Jennifer Johnson. And a study shows that the effectiveness of the Pfizer vaccine dropped significantly six months after the second dose. What does this mean moving forward? And should everybody be recommended to get a booster? It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. To begin with today, Aaron O'Toole on the hot seat. Uh, of course, they were not successful in the federal election. We all know that now. And uh, federal conservative leader Aaron O'Toole says that after meeting with his caucus yesterday, he's confident that his 118 elected MPs have his back. Rob Westgate has details. Conservative MPs gathered yesterday for the first time in person since the party's election defeat two weeks ago, which saw them win two fewer seats than under former leader Andrew Scheer. The party suffered losses of incumbent MPs, including five elected people of color, and they failed to make crucial gains needed in the Greater Toronto Area, Quebec, and Metro Vancouver. Despite all that, O'Toole has spent the time since the election highlighting the positives, including how the party increased its share of the vote in Ontario and won new seats in Atlantic Canada. Rob Westgate, The Canadian Press. So the rumors are persistent on Capitol Hill that, uh, that this may well be uh, the end of the line for O'Toole, although the MPs are singing a different song. Uh, to try to wade through the, the rhetoric and get down to the facts here, we're so pleased to welcome back to the program Dr. Lori Turnbull. Dr. Turnbull is the director of the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. Uh, doctor, always a pleasure. Thanks for joining us today. Are we there? Yep, I, I hope so. Oh, okay. Yeah, I think we're hooked up now. Okay, fine. <laughs> okay, good. Always, that, oh, that one-second delay always freaks me out. But anyway, that's the remote broadcast. That we'll get used to it eventually, I'm sure. Uh, let, let's talk about what happened yesterday. Uh, they, they did invoke, there was a, a, they, they call the uh, Reform Act, which is a, a, an invention of uh, MP, Conservative MP Michael Chung, that basically says you can dump the leader if uh, you have 20% of the MPs forced to vote on a secret ballot. Uh, they enacted that. Now, they didn't actually vote on whether they wanted to get rid of the leader yesterday but the fact that they actually put that in play and said yeah we want to do this right now uh is is that a, a bad sign for Aaron O'Toole? um not necessarily like i think given the fact that um they didn't win the election given the fact that they actually lost seats i think this isn't a surprise and in some ways it, i think it gives him <clears throat> at least some parameters to work within right like in some ways it, it puts it out there that if they want to have a review, if somebody wants to get the twenty the twenty percent signatures that forces a vote, you know there there it is. Go ahead and do it. But if not, you know, <laughs> back off and let me let me do my thing. And so I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. I think it could potentially be in the sense that it's just kind of prolonging maybe a, a decision that the caucus will come to. I think they're giving it. It kind of feels like a, an extended probation period in that he's got something to prove here and he's got more time to do it. But some people aren't, you know, too happy with the fact that a leadership review wouldn't come otherwise until 2023 and they'd like something more, you know, they'd like something sooner. So I don't think he's out of the woods exactly, but I think, you know, for, for now, <laughs> for today, he's okay. When you say he has something to prove, something to prove to the Canadian voters or something to prove to the, to the Conservative caucus? I think it's more the latter, to be honest. I, I, I think I think it's both. Ultimately, I think um, obviously he 
tried the strategy in this election where he tried to pull the party a bit more to the center, a bit more um, to you know, make an appeal to progressive voters. And that didn't quite work in the sense that, yes, you know, he got he he did attract some different votes. He won seats where he didn't have them before, but he also also saw some of the base leave him and he, he lost some seats. And so it it's not like to me, it's, it's not determined yet, you know, how he's going to play this out and where he's going to go. And that's still a sort of ideological thing and an and, and ex- existential thing, an identity-based thing that the conservatives have to work out. And in that way, that is something that they have to prove to, to Canadians about, like, what do they stand for? And therefore, how will they try to, man- you know, build a vote going forward? But I think also his more immediate concern is to prove something to the caucus and to show that he's the right person to lead the party. Because I think, you know, for a while in that campaign, it looked like a win for him wasn't out of the question. And then around the midway point, things started to shift. And he, you know, his kind of, people have pointed out, you know, his second guessing or second guessing or or flip-flopping or changing his mind on things. It was really hard for conservative candidates to sell that at the door. And I think they felt, you know, they experienced that. So I think for right now, his, his immediate concern is the caucus. I mean, the comments yesterday were, I, I guess, what you'd expect uh, uh, the leader of the opposition party to, to say, you know, it's still blaming uh, Justin Trudeau for, to use his phrase, dividing the country, the unnecessary election, yada, yada, all the stuff that we heard during the campaign. Uh, but that's not going to help, you know, cure what's going on with the Conservative Party right now. Can we assume that they're having more sincere discussions about what went wrong uh, behind closed doors? I, I can understand that you don't want to wash your dirty laundry in public in situations like that, but is, is there going to be a, a, a proper assessment and, and a, 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 I guess a, a, an evaluation of exactly what went wrong, who said what and when? Yeah, so this is, I mean, in a formal capacity, this is what he's got um, the defeated candidate um, from Edmonton uh, coming to do. So he's appointed him to lead this this process of a review uh, of the That'd campaign. be James, James Cumming. Right, exactly. What happened, what went wrong, that sort of thing. And so we'll see what comes out of that. It's an interesting choice uh, of, of person, right? Like I, I think Jenny Byrne said yesterday, like this must mean he's not going to reoffer if he's going to take this on as opposed to be a candidate sometime in the future. And that, that might be the case. But it's interesting in the sense that um, this is somebody who can come at the role, the review role, as someone who lost, right, and who really has that perspective of, I was trying to sell this on the doorstep, and I did well, but I didn't come first, and, you know, so he's kind of bringing his own personal lens to it as as a defeated candidate. But also, um, you know, with, with, with all the respect in the world, he's, he's not a terribly well-known name across Canada. This is not um, James Moore or Ron Ambrose doing the review. This is somebody who is a little is a bit lesser known, and so I wonder if overall the results of the review are going to have a huge impact, and you know, in terms of assuring people that the party really kind of knows what happened and is prepared to do something different. Like, I, I'm not sure. I mean, that all remains to be seen. This is literally day one, so we'll we'll find that out. How intense is the tug-of-war that's going on within the caucus, within the party right now, Doctor? We know that there's a, a, a right-wing faction, a small-c conservative faction that you know, from Alberta and Saskatchewan, essentially, uh, that you know, they talked about, you know, they didn't want to admit that climate change exists, et cetera, et cetera. We know some of those rather contentious policies that were in the platform. Then there are the, the moderates who 
probably agreed with Aaron O'Toole that says you got to bring this party a little bit more to the middle if you want to try to attract Ontario voters, and which and they had not much success doing that. Uh, but isn't that the confrontation that's going on within right now? That's going to have to be resolved. I, you're never going to get everybody on the same page. I get that. But I think a lot of Canadians, from what I've heard over the last couple of weeks since the election, is uh, we're not quite sure who the Conservatives are these days. We're not quite sure they know who they are these days. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, that is definitely, you can see that fault line that has been exposed, I think, and maybe even made deeper as a result of this election and the fact that O'Toole, you know, as a number of them said, you know, he ran for the leadership as a true blue Tory, as a true blue conservative. And then he ran the election campaign as somebody different. And so even with Aaron O'Toole, you know, people are asking, where's the party? What does the party stand for? People are always also asking, where is Aaron O'Toole? What does Aaron O'Toole stand for? Which of them is, is the real guy, you know, and how does he want to do this? I think he's got a, a massive, you know, ideological challenge in front of him to the extent that he's still trying to govern over a party that merged, you know, from different factions of the right not that long ago. And Harper has been the only person, Stephen Harper, who has been able to, you know, preside effectively over this, really. Like, he's the only one that has been able to bring this to an election. It hasn't been that long, but, I mean, Andrew Scheer wasn't able to do it. There, he's, you know, Harper's the only, only one who's been able to keep the unity to the point where they can form a government. Now, O'Toole has his own challenge in terms of figuring out what is his strategy to do that, because his style is obviously very different than Harper's. I don't know how he does that. I also think that the caucus is divided in terms of, you know, regardless of where they are ideologically, whether Aaron O'Toole is the right guy. A lot of caucus members supported Peter McKay for the leadership. And, you know, again, because of COVID, because times have been so weird, it's possible that O'Toole really hasn't had the same opportunity to bring the caucus together. And I think this, I think he said yesterday was the first time that they all met. You know, so, I mean, that kind of thing makes it really difficult for, I think, for him to put the roots down for his leadership. And none of it is really in his control. It's just sort of the, the cards he was dealt at this point. When we look at the track records, though, and I'm just wondering just how quickly somebody wants to, you know, pull the trap door here. I mean, uh, you know, when, when Tom Mulcair lost in, in, well, the first time Justin Trudeau was elected as prime minister, uh, I don't think he saw that coming. You know, he went out to Edmund for, for a policy convention and came back without a job. Uh, mm-hmm. Andrew Scheer, of course, uh, say the same things that Aaron O'Toole said after the last election. Uh, I want to stay on. I'm going to stay on. I've got the support of my caucus. Well, that lasted about two weeks uh, until all of a sudden yeah. it said, okay, I guess I, I'm going to reconsider that. Uh, so what what is happening behind closed doors? Is there going to be this assessment? Are they willing to do the All political parties right now, I guess, are looking at this and saying, we don't have time for this. We, you know, we, we need to get mm-hmm. somebody who's going to be electric. And you know, because you and I have talked about this in the past, uh, Stephen Harper's not making any sounds like he wants to run again. He doesn't want to be the party leader again. I don't think so anyway. But the aura of Stephen Harper still exists within that party, and there are still a lot of people, especially in Alberta, that are saying, we won with that guy. We won with the way that guy governed. Uh, what, where's the next guy that's going to be like that? And I don't think they have an answer to that yet. Well, that's the key, is that you know, they can, you know, if, if they want to start a process that ends up with Aaron O'Toole um, you know, out of this position, that's fine. But that's no help if you don't have somebody who's going to do a better job. And they really, you know, regardless, I think, of where you sit on Aaron O'Toole's leadership, that, that issue, that challenge will, will confront the party. It's not actually, when you think about it, um, you know, 20% of, of the caucus is not that many people. So in terms of, like, if somebody is looking at this and they think they want to make a run at the leadership, go and get your signatures, and that's enough to force a review. And if you can convince, you know, the majority of caucus members to support that, then he's gone and the caucus can elect an interim member and then it switches over to the party to choose kind of the real leader. 
And so I think the caucus is only wise to take that risk and start that process if they know that the result is going to be better. Because if you've got a revolving door of leadership, that in itself becomes a problem. And I mean, it's and then they've got to think about too, what are the circumstances in this parliament? Is Justin Trudeau... Um, you know, is this going to be his last his last term? What are what's the long term prognosis? Is Aaron O'Toole able to be effective and make something of opportunities in this minority parliament? And so then, when you think about that stuff, is like, is is it better to ride this out and to kind of see what he can do in the next year or so? But the fact that they've they've elected to have these parts of the Reform Act at their disposal does kind of pull that center of gravity of power away from the leader to the caucus. And so he's, you know, he knows that. He, know, he knows that this is a possibility, that, that this action would be taken if, if it turns out that things don't go, go terribly well for him. Well, and that was the gamble he took, wasn't it? I mean, basically, he strayed from the party platform during the election. Not initially, but uh, like, like you say, with his vacillation on gun control, uh, the, it, not a very good job explaining their daycare policy and a number of other things mm-hmm. like that. And I'm, I'm still reminded of the, uh, the the op-ed that was in the Toronto Star, I think, about a week and a half before the election. You know, if you don't like Aaron O'Toole's policy, wait a day. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and that seemed to be the mindset that was evolving in the last 10 or 12 days of the campaign. And uh, he's obviously still wearing that. Oh, I think so. Yeah. And I think uh, there was a sense in the caucus that he did not consult appropriately around taking the strategy, the departure from the right. And there's a sense that, you know, because Maxime Bernier and the PPC were sort of hanging out on that farther right side of the spectrum and giving giving voters an option in terms of where to place their vote, that created issues and that created, you know, enough of a, of a disturbance and enough ridings that even though the PPC didn't win any seats, they, you know, they certainly took some, some support away from the Conservatives. And so what happened there? So I think, you know, he's, he's got definitely not an easy time ahead of him because people, I mean, some of them, some, like for instance, Shannon Stubbs is very outspoken about how even though she won, she, she lost some of the, that base of support. And the party is going to get stressed out if they can see, okay, you're trying to make a play for more progressive, more centrist voters. You're, you're kind of rolling the dice here. But in so doing, you haven't produced any more seats and you're actually eroding the base. And so where are you going to land in a way that's going to be, you know, a go-forward strategy for the Conservatives? And I think, yeah, like people are wondering, is he the guy to do it? Is there somebody else? Well, it's, uh, I guess, just to wrap this up, fair to say that uh, that he's not the only one who may be feeling the heat right now. Uh, even, uh, you know, the NDP and there's some circle about Jagmeet Singh and whether or not he's the guy for the long term here. And as you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, uh, even grumblings uh, in the Liberal caucus, even though they, they did win uh, another minority government, uh, about how long they want uh, Justin Trudeau to stay on as leader. I think that's pretty much his call. But, uh, you know, the, those conversations are being had behind closed doors, too. So, I mean, being, being a party leader on the federal level these days is a rather precarious position for all of them i suppose oh you bet and i mean every like no leader lasts forever eventually people are going to get itchy people want to go in a different direction somebody gets ambitious and yeah i mean like even though trudeau won he didn't win big like he promised you know he didn't he didn't deliver the kind of result that the liberals were hoping for and so at, at some point like if we look at this parliament it's it's hard to imagine that he would go for a fourth mandate Right. Because like the, the, the mood now is, you know, no more early off cycle elections. Nobody wants it. And so if this parliament lasts for three or four years, that makes him prime minister for nine or ten. And so, you know, at, the, at that point, you know, most parties will be ready for a refresher, even if the leader has been very successful. Well, uh, we'll see what happens in the gum- coming days anyway. Uh, Doctor, always a pleasure to get your perspective on this. Thanks so much for the time again today. Thank you, too. Take care. Take care. Dr. Laurie Turnbull, director of the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. 
You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Bombshell testimony in Washington yesterday. Uh, Facebook whistleblower has told the U.S. Congress that social media giants' products, that being Facebook, have hurt kids while prioritizing profits over safety. Sagar Bergani has some details. My name is Frances Haugen. I used to work at Facebook. And while a data scientist there, Haugen says she learned devastating truths about Facebook and Instagram. Facebook's products harm children, stoke division, and weaken our democracy. And Facebook's own research shows that, but executives hide it so they can keep making profits. Haugen tells the Senate panel lawmakers must step in with oversight. They won't solve this crisis without your help. Senator Ed Markey says it will happen. Your time of invading our privacy, promoting toxic content, and preying on children and teens is over. Sagar Magani, Washington. Well, and not surprisingly, Facebook has responded. The Facebook VP of Content Policy, Monica Bickert, says that, well, Haugen wasn't really as involved as she claims. You know, she didn't work on these issues at Facebook, and I think that she's uh, mischaracterized a lot of the documents that she stole. Uh, so the back and forth is going to continue here. And, of course, discredited witnesses is a, a, a typical strategy, I guess, in situations like this. So what are the implications of this? Uh, to talk about this, please to welcome back to the program Jennifer Johnson. Jennifer is Washington correspondent for Global News down in uh, the nation's capital, south of the border. Uh, Jennifer, always a pleasure. Thanks for being with us again today. Thanks for having me, Bill. You know, my first takeaway with this is I think this is the first time in about 10 or 12 years I've actually seen Republicans, Democrats get, uh, get along and actually agree on something. There's a, a, almost a, a congenial attitude among this, uh, there, as if there's a common problem here that these guys understand and, and face here. Well, yeah, that's right. I mean, Democrats have been complaining about the social media giants for a long time, but Republicans have basically chimed in since the 2020 election or prior to that when Twitter clamped down and Facebook clamped down on uh, President Donald Trump. So, yeah, you did see a lot of bipartisan support. Uh, Richard Blumenthal, the uh, Democrat from Connecticut, saying we need more regulation. And right after that, John Thune, the Republican uh, from the Dakota, saying, yeah, we he agrees. We need more regulation. So, um, from South Dakota, I should say. Um, but, uh, yeah, so they, there was definite bipartisan support for more regulation. But as you said, it was bombshell testimony coming from Francis Haugen. And what's what's the impact going to be, Jennifer? We've seen whistleblowers come and go, and, and you know, whether it's to do with uh, phone calls to Ukraine or whatever the case might have been. And, and you know, the, as we just mentioned, the, the the role here is okay. The people that are being accused try to discredit the witness and uh, and and try to dismiss the testimony that's going forward on this. Uh, do you get the sense that the, that this one's got some legs and this may go someplace? Well, I think that Congress will pass some some le- legislation. Um, putting safeguards and regulating the social media giants. Whether or not that changes with the social media giants is another story because Frances Haugen claims that Facebook has misled the public and said we're doing X, Y, and Z when in fact it hadn't been doing that. And so whether or not that actually changes with the social media giants is another question. They can pass all the regulations they want. The question is, is it really going to change? Now, Facebook you know, no matter what kind of bad publicity it gets, it's still holding on to around 2.8 billion users. It's still a trillion-dollar company, and it's still a company that makes a lot of money every single day. And so, you know, 
we can hope that there are going to be changes, but, you know, is that the reality? I don't know. Well, and that's the question I think a lot of people were asking. I mean, you know, Zuckerberg has responded as well and, and, and typically said, you know, it's all BS. There's nothing going on here. Uh, we'd never do that sort of thing. But, Jennifer, we already know from past testimony in, in past congressional hearings, as a matter of fact, uh, that, you know, Facebook has acted as a platform for, for Russian disinformation when it comes to political ideas. Uh, there's a lot of stuff on there that they know that is not accurate. And Zuckerberg's reaction when they asked him about that last year was basically a shrug his shoulders and said so what and we just put it out there and it's up to the reader to decide whether it's true or not which is not really i guess what the congressional committee wanted to hear yesterday well and it's not really true because what what she maintains is they is that facebook does algorithms and that the more divisive the content the more shares it gets the more likes or dislikes it gets you know the angry face um and so the more people read it and therefore they turn around and say to their advertisers we can charge you more because of these are getting so much hits so many people are seeing that. So it does make a difference because they're making more money, she maintains, um, off of divisive content. Now, it's important to note that while you said there's, you know, there have been whistleblowers before, she left Facebook and she was in the Civic Integrity Unit for two years. She left Facebook and she photocopied tens of thousands of documents. And some of those documents were Facebook's own research showing the harm that it's doing. So she came armed and ready to testify before Congress, and she left those documents with them. And that's one of the huge differences, I guess. Uh, in other words, there's, there's this proof here, there's documentation that she's that she's brought along with her. And she started out anonymously on this whole thing, didn't she? And I guess it was, what, on 60 Minutes last week that she that they actually came out and said, this is who I am, this is what I did. Uh, and, and then, of course, came, you know, came the hearing on this. And uh, I, I, I get the sense that, she, that this, if this was something that she'd been working on for quite some time and uh you know and she she obviously saw that the, the concerns that were being raised here and saw what she thought was the the abuse of some of the power that facebook has right now and started to build a case on her own well that's right she saw the research showing that this is causing harm this is causing political discord we got rid of the safeguards after the 2020 election they weren't there to prevent the january 6th attack attack on the capitol so she saw a number of things where they had the research, they had the proof, and let it go anyway. Particularly, she, you know, she talked about Instagram, which Facebook owns, that the own research that Facebook did on the Instagram post showed that young girls were more likely to commit suicide or more likely to be anorexic because of the post on Instagram. And yet that information, that research done by Facebook people was ignored, and, and you know, she brought that up. And so... You know, she, she brought a, a lot to the table yesterday, and as I said, tens of thousands of photocopied documents. And she's got a great background, and she's, she worked at Pinterest, she worked at Google, and then she spent two years on Facebook, and she didn't like what she saw. So she did anonymously file a complaint with federal authorities, and then decided, then the Wall Street Journal did a report, then she decided to go on 60 Minutes prior to her testimony yesterday before the Senate subcommittee. But anytime you take on the giants, and, and you know, we can remember some of the, the, the whistleblowers that happened against Big Tobacco years ago uh, that ultimately led to some tougher legislation that, that came from Washington in that regard, but it took an awfully long time. Uh, and, and God knows Facebook have the financial resources and the legal resources to fight this tooth and nail all the way down the line. But the fact that the, the Congressional Committee seemed to be so sympathetic and, and so understanding uh, of what she was saying yesterday is that, that basically doesn't put them you know as, as an objective in the middle of a body that's going to make some decisions i think they're looking at this as an opportunity uh and you mentioned blumenthal is one of them to do what they've been trying to do and wanting to do for years now right and and 
um, Amy Klobuchar, the senator from Minnesota, she said, we hope the public hears this and we have the public's backing to go after the Facebooks. And, and, and she's right because, I mean, the public isn't, for the most part, going to get off Facebook because of this. But the public may say, look, I've got a you know, 10-year-old daughter and she's on Instagram. Or I have a 13-year-old daughter. I don't want this. And so there might be this time around enough backing from the public that Congress is going to make some changes. The White House is behind it. Jen Psaki, the White House uh, press secretary, was saying a couple days ago, we want Congress to act. We've been pushing Congress to act. But Mark Zuckerberg is a very, very powerful person. He has a lot of money behind him. He's got a big lawyers. And so, you know, as we've got, you know, as we said before, whether or not things really change remains a question because Mark Zuckerberg has said in the past, we're making changes. We've, we've spent $13 billion in the past, I don't know, three or four years on safety uh, measures. But things clearly haven't changed. This is not the first time that Facebook's faced controversy. I mean, there have been a number of times where there have been actually, you know, let's ban Facebook, let's uh, get off Facebook. A lot of it in the past, though, had, had to do with uh, the sharing of information and where that information was actually being sent. And and it, it's, I, I think, you know, got a lot of celebrities offside with this. Well, Jim Carrey, I guess, was one of the more vocal saying, everybody get off Facebook. You know, the, these guys are, well, they used some right. rather colorful language, I guess, at the time. Uh, but the testimony yesterday went to a different level. I mean, they started talking about the harm it's causing to children and to young adults in situations like that. That's a pretty strong card to play. Well, I think it definitely did have a different tone. And when, and when Facebook has, you know, been in the hot seat before, like you said, it's been about politics and we let Russia you know, influence the elections. And, you know, sometimes the Democrats are like, mm, sometimes the Republicans, you know, depending on which party had benefited. Um, but this time, I think you're right. It struck a different chord because she was talking specifically about people. She was talking about the January 6th attack. But she was, as you said, talking about harming children. And that this, the research is showing that, you know, and, and it was, there was double-digit increases in um, eating disorders and suicide among young girls. And, and, you know, I think that did strike a different chord with Congress and probably with the Ameri- with the public, with the worldwide public. How far can this go, though? You, at the beginning of our conversation, you, I think you just laid the foundation for this. What can you do? This is this is not like, you know, the public airwaves, you know, the FCC down in Washington uh, that can withdraw radio station or television licenses because those are public airwaves and we control that. Uh, the Internet's a different beast altogether. And I, and I think one of the problems that's been, I guess, facing uh, the congressional leaders who have been wanting to do something about this, whether it's on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, any of these others over the last number of years, is is how to approach this. Uh, where's the, you know, the authority? Where's the jurisdiction to do something about this? And, and, and I guess what a lot of people are going to be asking at this stage Jennifer, and you raised the question a little while ago. Uh, can Zuckerberg just thumb his nose at whatever these guys are going to do and say, "Look, you can't, you can't, you don't have control of me." I, that's all there is to it. Boy, I think Zuckerberg's smart in terms of his PR. He's going to say, "Yes, yes, we want." They, they did say yesterday. One of their PR people said, "Yeah, we we actually welcome more regulation. We we want other eyes on Facebook." But then they can say that, and they can spin that tune. Um, and there will be regulation, there will be legislation passed, whether that has any teeth is, is a whole other issue. But, you know, you're getting into First Amendment rights, and you're into private companies, and there will be lawsuits. I'm sure if the regulation goes too far, Mark Zuckerberg is going to fight this. He owns 55% of that company. This is, you know, this is his company. He makes the final decisions. Nobody overrules Mark Zuckerberg. And so, you know, whether or not it's going to really change things, I don't know. Money talks always does in situations like this. Uh, 
and, and so the ball is kind of in the court of the advertisers to a certain extent now, isn't it, Jennifer? That uh, if, if they feel as if, uh, you know, there's a lot of heat on Facebook right now, and if they feel as if they're going to get sucked into this uh, because they're the ones that are benefiting from what some people are going to consider to be, uh, if not illegal activity, certainly unethical activity by Facebook, uh, do, do advertisers uh, who are flocking to Facebook right now, do they back away, which is going to, have a, an impact on the bottom line. Uh, let's face it, Facebook is not going to declare bankruptcy by any stretch of the imagination. But if they see revenues dropping, that's going to put a lot of pressure on them. Is, is that a, a possibility? And there is the perfect question, Bill, because that that is always what makes these companies change, is when the advertisers, advertisers say, we don't like what's going on, we don't like this, uh, we're going to pull our dollars out of this. Um, that's when companies tend to change. And so it'll be interesting to see what happens with the advertisers. If they see this testimony, saw this testimony yesterday, you know, read more about it and think, this isn't great. I don't, you know, we shouldn't be associated with this. Uh, you know, if they put heat on Facebook, perhaps Facebook will make changes. I think they'll make some changes. I think they'll tell the public they're making changes, whether or not they're changes that are enough to really influence, the, you know, the past behavior. You know, I, 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 it's hard to say. You know, Facebook has to lose a lot of people, a lot of users to make it notice, you know, to, to, to say, okay, maybe we do need to change. So it's going to have to lose users and it's going to have to lose advertisers for change to make, changes to be made. Um, the regulations will do something, but, you know, it, this is one of these things where it's going to be, it's, you know, it's getting out of a subcommittee. It'll go into a committee to study. It'll take forever. As Congress usually does, even though it has bipartisan support, um, and it'll you know it'll be interesting to see just how much teeth this has and how it's going to stand up legally because it is a private company. Which is the major stumbling point here, because I know one of the other things that some of the uh, people on the committee talked about yesterday uh, was is Facebook's just too big. It's time to break it up. It's you know, uh, and again, I don't know where the jurisdiction is to do that with a private company in a situation like that. But you know, should they divest themselves of some of their, their ownership and some of their interests right now? Uh, it's it's a debate that's not new to this, but I'm wondering just how much pressure there's going to be on Zuckerberg to do that and divest himself of some of the the holdings that they already have. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it certainly is, is going to be interesting to see. I mean, you know, these these companies, I mean, for example, Donald Trump is suing Twitter right now yeah. because he wants to be back on. And Twitter's like, we're not letting you back on. I mean, they can do what they want to do. Um, but, you know, it, it also is a massive, you know, most companies in America, well, all companies in America, are do face federal regulations in some form. And so these guys really have it. So, you know, maybe Congress will take a really approach. I mean, they'll have lawyers advising them on this is going to hold up in court, this is not going to hold up in court. And so, you know, maybe it will have a lot of teeth. It'll be interesting to see how this all plays out, not only with Congress, but as you said, with the advertisers, with the public, and, you know, see what Zuckerberg decides to do. I mean, he's he's been pretty defiant in the past 24 hours, saying mm-hmm. that, you know, this she didn't work in this department, this is not the Facebook that we know, um, you know, but you know, we'll see. Money talks, as you said. Well, we'll uh, as you go around and get the rumblings from the folks over there on the Beltway, we'll find out what's happening with your reporting over the next couple of days. Uh, Jennifer, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for taking some time for us today. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me, Bill. Have a good Take day. Take care.
Jennifer Johnson, Washington correspondent for Global News, who's uh, got her ear to what's going on down there with the congressional hearings and uh, everything else that's happening these days uh, in uh, the Capitol. It's a pretty rough time to get legislation passed and at the same time uh, paying attention to something as important as this as well. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. As the uh, vaccination program continues here uh, in drips and drabs, unfortunately, the numbers should be a lot higher, and we're hoping that's going to happen. We've tried to present uh, this program over the last uh, couple of months uh, uh, information to help you make a, a smart decision about what's going on and how effective the vaccines can be in uh, preventing uh, the spread, of course, of the Delta variant in particular. Uh, a week or two ago on the program, we had uh, Dr. Don Baudichon, a tenor professor of pathology and molecular medicine at McMaster University, uh, ex- to explain the difference between Pfizer and Moderna vaccines and uh, preventing of hospitalizations. So Moderna uses three times the amount of uh, mRNA as the Pfizer does. So effectively, it's like a high-dose vaccine. And we actually have, for older adults, people in long-term care, people with complex medical conditions, we have a high-dose influenza vaccine. So we have the version that we give young, healthy people, and then we put in three times as much of the, the vaccine ingredients, and we give it to older people whose immune system just needs a bit more of a kick. Well, as it turns out, the Moderna vaccine, we didn't know it at the time, is very much working as like the high-dose influenza vaccine. In my own study of long-term care residents, we found that, sure enough, the people who got the, the Moderna vaccine had a lot more antibodies that, lasted, that are lasting a bit longer and seem to be higher quality. And it's just like that high-dose influenza vaccine. Good data to have, and you know, about which vaccine to get. And, and the advice we always got, of course, from our medical experts was, like, just get the vaccine, uh, whether it's Pfizer or Moderna or whatever. Just get the vaccine and get started under the program and make sure you're double vaccinated. And, and more and more people are starting to take, up us, take us up on that, which is good news. However, let's talk about the effectiveness of the vaccines. There's a study and some new data that's come out about that uh, that is, uh, shall we say, very instructive because I think it's very much related to the discussion about having booster shots. Uh, the effectiveness of the Pfizer-BioNTech uh, uh, vaccine is, uh, in pre- from preventing the infection, that is, uh, drops to 47% from 88% about six months after the second dose, according to data published on Monday uh, that the U.S. health agencies consider when deciding on the need for booster shots. So, uh, and this was all published in The Lancet, by the way, a very reputable uh, medical magazine. Joining us to talk about this and the implications is uh, Dr. Barry Pakes. Uh, Dr. Pakes is a public health and preventative medicine physician, also a professor at the Dalalana School of Public Health at the University of Toronto. Uh, Doctor, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for the time today. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So let's talk a little bit about the effectiveness of the vaccine. I'm, I, I, I've got Pfizer. Both of my shots were Pfizer. Uh, and uh, that seemed to be, in many people's minds, I guess, the vaccine of choice. Moderna, of course, uh, as we found out now, uh, because of the, the higher dosage of, of the active ingredients, I guess we could call it, uh, seems to have more efficacy on this. But uh, to drop from 88% down to 47%, uh, is that worrisome or is that something that was to be expected? Uh, no, you know, we, uh, you know, whether it was expected or not is, is a good question. Um, you know, we, we just didn't know, of course. You know, we're, we're learning as we go. We certainly did know this in August when this, this particular paper was published in preprint, and, and there were other similar studies done in Israel that did show that the vaccine uh, protection did wane over time, whether it's four months or six months. And, and, you know, I think that is very clear. Now, I think it's important to recognize, though, that, you know, each... Uh, study like this is very contextual. So, you know, this one was in California, the ones in Israel. Those are where um, the vaccine was actually given at the manufacturer's interval, which is, you know, three or four weeks. 
Um, and what some of us are thinking actually recently is that, um, you know, as you know, in Ontario, most of Canada, because we had less vaccine to start out with, we had a longer interval. You know, I personally had about 12 weeks between my vaccine doses. And, and it seems like that actually may be prote uh, protecting us much better. And we may actually not have that waning immunity as quickly as others. So, you know, that's some good news for Canadians, potentially. Well, you've assuaged some of my concerns already, because <laughs> I'm I'm in the same boat. I think my first was late April, and my my last second one was uh, first part of July. So I'm just about in the same time frame here. And there does seem to be at least some anecdotal data, doesn't there, doctor? That that longer interval does extend the uh, the efficacy of the vaccine. Yeah, there is some initial thinking around that. Certainly, we do know that's the case with the AstraZeneca vaccine. And, and frankly, we know that with a lot of other vaccines. We give them, we give a sort of a primary series, and then we give a boost a little bit later on. So that really does remain to be seen. I'm hopeful that that's the case. I think what's really more important to recognize here with this study is, yes, the vaccine protection did go down over time for infection, but it didn't really go down that much for hospitalization, which of course, when we think about you know, our health system and getting back to normal overall, um, what really matters is hospitalization. And, and the protection from hospitalization did continue at a very high rate you know, in the 80s there um, beyond five months. So I think that is very good news. Um, and the other thing, of course, is, you know, we can we can nitpick over our own personal protection from whichever vaccine we may have gotten at whatever interval. But the most important thing for us as individuals and a society is to make sure, as you've said many times, that everybody else around you is vaccinated. So, you know, even if the vaccine is only 30, 40 percent effective, if literally everybody has it, there's no circulating virus, you're not going to get it either way. There's, and I only read the overview of this uh, study, which is uh, rather interesting, but they did raise a couple of other questions. You, you, the length of time between the first and second shots is certainly a factor, as you brought to our attention. Uh, the other, though, that uh, that uh, some of the folks that read this in the Lancet were asking uh, is that this study did not take into account, as you mentioned, some of the other factors, some of the other protocols. Uh, were they wearing masks? Were they practicing social distancing? And Because uh, we've seen it, even in California uh, and many other states right now, uh, I mean, uh, they've tended to throw into the wind a lot of the times and simply say I'm vaccinated now I can go and do whatever I want with whoever I want whenever I want uh, which could be a factor in, in in this as well yeah absolutely you know every study is is sort of dependent on on who's participating in it and the social dynamics around them and, and that's why we don't just look at one study we look at multiple studies and and you know the studies in Israel that have shown similar things and and, and as I'm sure um, you and your listeners know they've embarked on a very robust booster dose campaign that's actually been very, very successful. And they found similar things in terms of waning immunity. So, you know, I think it's a pretty consistent finding. Um, and, you know, we do have time in Ontario because not only did we have longer intervals, but we got vaccinated quite a bit later um, than in, you know, California or in Israel. And so, you know, I think we have some time to think about this. And in Ontario, as you know, we've already started our third doses among the most vulnerable. And we'll, we'll see how things go going forward. I, I guess some of the other takeaways here that are, are, should be gratifying is there was some concern. Uh, I know when people were getting vaccinated a couple of months ago, but well, is this going to be effective against the Delta variant? At least the studies that we saw here from California and, and from what I can see from the one from Israel as well, doctor, uh, seem to indicate that especially in the initial months, it's, it's very effective against the Delta variant. Yes, that was certainly a great concern of ours. So we know that Delta is much more infectious and we know it causes more severe infection. And we were definitely initially worried that there might be some vaccine escape, that the vaccine was not as effective against Delta. And as you pointed out, it doesn't seem that that's the case. It seems like it's equally as effective um, 
you know, or, or nearly as effective. It's just that Delta is that much more transmissible. But that certainly is reassuring. And, you know, we're very hopeful that if we can get as many people vaccinated as possible, that will prevent the emergence of any Delta-like vaccine escape variants, of which there are a few, you know, circulating here and there around the world. There's there's some discrepancy and I guess some some conflict about the the booster shot and uh, and I can remember conversations you and I had I guess going back months and months and months as this vaccine program is just starting to roll out and even when somebody brought that up you know about whether or not there was going to be a booster and they said well does that mean the vaccines just aren't that effective uh, again to go back to what we, we we have been doing in our lives our lives rather for the last little while just about all the vaccines we get at one time or another need booster shots don't they whether it's for diphtheria or you know, I mean any list of things that we're getting shots for right now nothing lasts forever does it yeah many of them certainly do need booster shots something like um a measles vaccine for example doesn't really need a booster shot because it's a live vaccine but you know whether or not you need a booster is partly dependent on how good that vaccine is but also depends a lot on how much of that virus or bacteria whatever it might be that you're trying to protect against is circulating in the community so again if we can get rid of this in our community and get rid of it globally and we're going to need boosters a lot less often to protect us. But, you know, really, we do have some time on that. And fortunately, on Ontario, with, with almost everything, whether it's lockdown or vaccines or other measures, we're, we're nice and behind any other parts of the world. And so we can just look to them, see what's going on elsewhere, and make some really, you know, well-informed decisions about uh, what we need to do in the context of Ontario. What the Food and Drug Administration in the States is doing, and, and uh, even the CDC, I guess, is talking about is vaccines, booster vaccines for everybody uh, who wants one down there. Is, is that uh, jumping the gun just a little bit? Uh, perhaps it is. You know, again, they're in a different context where, you know, only 50 percent or, you know, of their population has gotten vaccinated. So, you know, for the people who have got vaccinated, you know, they actually do need more protection because there is more vaccine circulating. And so, you know, I do not think that is the right decision in Ontario right now. I think we may get there at some point. We, we've already started vac- revaccinating and getting a booster to those who are immunocompromised. We're, we're likely going to start with, you know, older individuals as well, and perhaps with people who got vaccinated right at the beginning of the pandemic back in December, January, February. So we'll see how things move forward. We have lots of vaccine in Ontario. We have uh, around 6 million doses sitting in fridges that we're ready to use. And, and you know, I, I have all every confidence that we're going to make the right decision and use that vaccine when it's necessary. Uh, th- you mentioned about who may be eligible for a booster shot at this stage. Uh, and, and you talked about uh, those who may be, mo- you know, the frail elderly and things of this nature. And, and I know that they've already started that process. Uh, but there's a, a, a cutoff here for age as well. When you say, uh, you know, pe- older people, uh, where does where do you draw that line? I mean, are you over 65, over 70, over 75? That Because uh, as you've told us in past discussions, uh, it's, it's just a fact that you're, a person's immune system deteriorates as they get older. And, and you know, does that mean that everybody who's over 65 or 70 or whatever that age might be uh, should be considering a booster shot? You know, that, that might be possible. You know, there are, there are two things there. As we age, we're more at risk of the bad outcomes, you know, hospitalization and death. And as we age, our immune system you know, ages with us and may give us less protection. So, you know, there's this, this interplay of those two things pushing in the same direction. Um, and, you know, where that number, magic number is, is it age 60, is it age 50, is it 65? You know, it, you know that's um, just going to be borne out in some of the evidence. Ultimately, it's going to be somewhat arbitrary because is a 63-year-old really that different than a 66-year-old? You know, probably not that much. But, you know, these decisions are what gets made over time and as we build with experience. And, and, uh, you know, I think we're poised over the fall and winter to to see those decisions. And and hopefully everybody will, will get their booster when it's offered to them. 
You make a very interesting point, though. As you say, because of the time frames, uh, we can listen and we can learn from other jurisdictions, Israel, the UK, places like that, that seem to be a little bit ahead of us, and, and certainly even Australia and New Zealand uh, down, down under, uh, who have opposite seasons to us, that uh, we can see just what kind of protocols they undertake and whether or not they're effective or not. Yeah, absolutely. We, you know, we've been this whole, uh, the whole time of the pandemic, we've been looking to other places, and in some ways we're the same, some ways we're different. You know, it, it's really important to recognize that, you know, uh, weather makes a big difference here. As we move into the fall, you know, it, it was a beautiful September, but as weather gets a little bit colder, we're going to move more inside, there's going to be more contact, and there's certainly that risk of increased transmission. Why it's, you know, and that's the reason why it's even more important to get vaccinated now, as opposed to somewhere like Florida, for example, that had its worst outbreaks in the summer, because down in Florida, everybody needs air conditioning and is going inside in the summer months and going outside in the fall. And, you know, those are things important to recognize when, you know, people at home are going on the Internet and trying to compare regions. Everything is very contextual. Dr. Moore, uh, the chief medical officer, uh, has been pretty adamant, too, about that protocol, uh, especially here in Ontario, about the mask wearing, you know, especially when we're going indoors, you know, still going to the grocery store, still going to a restaurant, uh, even, you know, you take the mask off to eat or drink or whatever the case may be, but if you're walking around in the restaurant, you have to wear the mask. Uh, is that going to be helpful? Is that going to try to, to, to flatten that curve to keep it down? Absolutely. That's, you know, that is incredibly helpful. And I think, unfortunately, what's going on in some of the Western provinces, particularly Saskatchewan and, and Alberta, uh, is a real cautionary tale. You know, in, in Ontario, we kept those masks the entire time over the summer. Manitoba got rid of them just for a short two weeks, but got back to the masks. And, and we can see really the difference. So, you know, vaccination makes a huge difference, but the masks as well, you know, we've, we've gotten used to it. It's going to be two years, uh, you know, pretty soon. It, it just is a fact of life for now. And, you know, between the masks and the and vaccination, I think we're on a really good trajectory in Ontario. We just need that extra five to seven percent of our friends and colleagues to, to um, you know, to join us in getting vaccinated. And I think we'll have a much better uh, winter uh, and, and going forward. Because of that, though, Doctor, is it about time that we had a discussion about uh, what, what one of your colleagues, I think, characterized as living with COVID? Uh, acceptance of the fact that, look, it's never going to go away. It's always going to be here in some way, shape, or form, or at least, you know, in, in the shadows. Uh, and that we're just going to have to understand that there are some things that we may just have to be doing going forward that we're not, not used to now, but hadn't had to have, have done at all, I guess, before the pandemic. Absolutely. There are going to be so many parts of our society, as there already are, that will have changed following COVID. What we don't want to do, what we cannot do, is live with COVID in the sense that we have to live with the fact that our hospitals are going to have COVID patients that are going to prevent you when you get your heart attack from getting appropriate treatment. That is something I don't think any of us in public health or in healthcare are prepared to live with. We shouldn't have to live with that. And so we're still on that trajectory and, and, and we're still you know, fighting part of that battle before we say what it's really going to look like in the long term. As you do the research and, and your colleagues do the research on this, uh, and, you know, you mentioned AstraZeneca, which was, uh, I guess, the first one that got widely distributed in Canada, uh, then Pfizer, Moderna, uh, Johnson & Johnson to a lesser extent, of course, but uh, certainly it seems to be popular down in the States. Uh, will uh, there be an evolution where there will be a vaccine of choice? I mean, we already know that Moderna seems to be, uh, simply by the way of the, it's made up and, and, you know, the active ingredients, so to speak, inside the, 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 the vaccine, that it seems to be more effective and for longer periods of time. Is that going to become the vaccine of choice or do, are you still confident in, in the Pfizer's and others? 
Oh, I'm, I'm quite confident in Pfizer. And I, you know, I think it's important to continue doing the research, for example, as, as you mentioned on the differences between Pfizer and Moderna. And, and Moderna, um, while it seems to have been more effective in the, you know, in the situation that your, your former guest had described in terms of creating effective antibodies, there's only emerging evidence now that clinically speaking, you know, in, in real world, Tests that it seems to be more effective for some groups, but also to remember that Moderna is a little bit re- more reactogenic. In other words, you know, when, when people get the Moderna vaccine, we have seen, you know, not necessarily serious side effects, but we have seen, you know, a lot more personally in, in my practice um, of the, you know, very red arm or a little bit more of a rash reaction. Um, you know, there is that slightly increased risk of Moderna compared to Pfizer in younger men with pericarditis and myocarditis. So, you know, it's always this balance of reactogenicity or the amount that it elicits immune response and, and the protection um, that it gives. And, and, you know, that's the sort of thing that public health authorities and, and, and our governments are helping um, to, to help people understand their risk. And, you know, when you do talk about vaccine choice, um, I think some of it is sort of a, a bit of a false choice. You know, the, your, your choice about what vaccine you get is, is more dependent on your age and medical conditions um, than it is about, you know, sort of any personal research you might be doing. So, you know, I think that the public health authorities are going to be letting people know um, what makes most sense for, you know, their demographic or gender or that sort of thing. And we really need to listen to that. With some of the vaccine uh, programs, especially for the kids that get them every now and then, you know, we started when you're just in elementary school, it's, it's almost a cocktail. It looks, you know, because it, it addresses a number of different things, those booster shots, you know, mumps, rubella, and a number of other tetanus and, and all those sorts of things. Uh, we're heading into flu season, uh, and we need to have a discussion about that sooner than later, I guess, too, about flu shots, etc. One of my friends was just musing the other day, uh, wouldn't it be neat if they could combine a booster shot for COVID with a flu shot? Is, is that a viable option? Oh, yes, and, and they are not only working on it, but they're actively, uh, I believe, studying it in practice right now. So, you know, that is something I, I don't think that's going to be available in, in Canada for this flu season, but that is something certainly under investigation and, and you know, absolutely something that, that uh, might be on the horizon. You know, it, it's really difficult in terms of this pandemic to know what the next three months is going to look like, but, you know, I'm, I'm pretty confident that going forward over, over years, we're going to see more mRNA vaccines and we're going to continue to see more you know, co- combination vaccines potentially um, they are going to help us stay healthy. Fascinating news. And uh, as you say, it's, it's an ongoing process. But uh, the more data that gets in, the more informed we can be uh, about making decisions on this. Uh, doctor, it's always a pleasure to get your perspective on this. Thank you so much for the time today. Thank you for having me. Have a good day. You too. Dr. Barry Pakes from the uh, University of Toronto and the uh, Dallas School of Public Health. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.